The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, A Love Story. From award-winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says, director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words with her own focus. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill, and today I'm speaking with Alan Hughes about his documentary series on Hulu, Dear Mama. This series tracks the life of Afeni Shakur, the mother of Tupac Shakur, and the influence that it had on Tupac himself. Afeni was a member of the Black Panthers, and Hughes' series sets out to show how the experience of living as her son had a strong and often direct impact on the life and even lyrics of Tupac. Hughes, of course, with his brother, directed such films as Menace to Society, Dead Presidents, and The Book of Eli, as well as early hip-hop videos, including some of Tupac's. Yeah, I found it really interesting to watch these videos now through this new prism that Hughes provides, one that's founded deeply in the revolutionary spirit of the Panthers. Hughes's previous documentary was The Defiant Ones, which charted the intertwined careers of Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. Dear Mama received two Emmy nominations, one for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Series, and one for Outstanding Writing for a Nonfiction Program. If you like this conversation, please do follow the pod, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TopDocsPod, all one word, at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Alan Hughes about his documentary series, Dear Mama. Thank you for coming on. You know, I think as people know, Dear Mama is certainly about Tupac Shakur, but it's really a history of the Black Panthers as well, and the surprising connections this history has with the life and work of Tupac. And yep. it pivots around Dear Mama, the Dear Mama of Tupac's song, his mother, Afeni Shakur, a member of Black Panthers, and her influence on him, both personal and also one that's deeply imbued with the experience of the group. So mm. let's talk about the first two episodes especially, and I want to talk about how you start it how you bracket these episodes. I'll just spell out the incident just a little bit. Halloween, 1993 in Atlanta, Tupac sees on the street a confrontation between two white men and a black man. One of the white men strikes the black man who then flees, pursued by the two white men who produce firearms. Tupac pulls a gun, fires on the white men, injuring both, I believe. Tupac and his friends retreat to a hotel room where he calmly pleads dear mama for them. He's arrested. Turns out the two white men are off-duty police officers. Given the wide scope of the series, why did you want to start there? And why did you want to bracket these kind of first two episodes with that incident? I think it was important to start with the moment that by everyone that knows him and journalists and hip hop fans, that he became mythical. And, and when he shot those two off-duty cops in ATL, that took him to another level, even in the streets where you've seen the documentary, people talking about even that's when the street guys started respecting him. So you go, what happened that night? And when you find out what really happened and all the variables that went into it, like it actually did happen the way everyone said it did happen, but there were other things that played into the whole thing. So I thought it was an interesting way to see Tupac because he has become so mythical. And I think he was quite aware of, of his myth-making in his own time when he was alive as well. And let's use this incident as a way to unpack it throughout the first two episodes. And you get to learn that it wasn't what it seemed. You learn a lot about where he was psychologically, emotionally, and what went into that night. Plus, the most important thing, which is what's your hook? 
that night, everyone's panicked that they're going to jail. And all he's concerned about is playing this demo he just finished, which ended up being Dear Mama. No one had ever known that before or read that anywhere. Yeah. And I think really important part of this is it's him standing up for Black people, right? It's him standing yeah. up in the way his mother stood up. Yeah. I mean, that clearly was the impetus for him getting out of the car was him seeing a Black man getting harassed. But we've all seen something, but and we're not like rock stars at the same time. We don't get out and do what he did. You see what happened with George Floyd and all these other cases where nowadays people just film it. They don't get involved. No one ever heard of you getting involved with a gun and something like that. So he took it and it took it to another level. And it, you have a direct thread right back to the Panther Party and that training and how he was educated. Well, I think one of the surprises early on in the series, especially in this first episode, is this film you have of a 17-year-old Tupac, a student at Tamalpais High School in Marin County. And he's just amazing. He's just an incredibly mm -hmm. charismatic person. He understands the camera right away. Um, yep. I was wondering if you'd seen this footage prior or was this a revelation to you? I had seen the high school 17-year-old footage of Tupac. It was in other docs here and there. I think it may have been in the best one up until this point. That was The best one was Resurrection. I think it was 2002. And it was in his own voice. I think it may have been in that as well. But it had never really been explored as a way to contextualize this whole journey. And I always feel like, in the last couple of docs I've done, I've seen footage like that's that amazing, but never put in the right context. And when you put in the right context, it just becomes a whole nother thing. And you really play it off, I think, against another kind of key video you have in these first two episodes, which is this deposition that was taken at Clinton County Correctional Facility, way upstate New York, where yep. it was serving time on sexual assault charges, charges that I should note that you put into question in the series. At least that's the way I read it. You can see that he's the same person. And even in prison, there's these flashes, these vibrance, this youthful vibrance. But there are other notes as well. I think there's notes of experience here too. What do you see when you see that, when you look at that deposition? The deposition, you see a whole nother guy that you've never seen before, which blew me away. Like a very calm, thoughtful guy. You see the charisma on full display, but very organic and not forced at all. You see when he gets cornered, his intellect levels off the charts are not when he gets cornered, when they ask him an inappropriate question about his uncle, Geronimo Pratt. And you almost see his legal mind at work too. Tupac is most vital, I think, in the deposition. If you were to look at what I consider Tupac at his best, that was the revelation. I had never seen his depositions and I, I don't think they'd ever been out there before. And then there's the famous Tepton Soren interview that he did for MTV in, 90, in 96, where he's wearing the white do-rag and then the House of Blues performance. Those three things, but especially that deposition, because no one had ever seen it, you see the transcendent spirit of what made this guy so special and endearing. In that deposition, you can see him also wittingly or unwittingly uh, seducing the people that are trying to take him down. The attorneys on the other side of the table, he has them in stitches. And it's not like he's forcing it either. It's just natural. In that deposition and then in some of the TV interviews, as you mentioned, the interviews are really trying to pin him down and put him, I think, in this kind of gangster rap box. And he really resists this. He's not going to let others define his music. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, you know, it's, and that's the absurdity of Tupac because, you know, he's like, why am I the one? Why, when he was on trial, why? They, they're talking about like some thug with some tattoos and this, that, and the other. You think to yourself like Tupac, that is what you're broadcasting as well. But he was much deeper than that. But he was also would trap himself into those contradictions. So that's what made him interesting. 
you really show there's a division in his music between what you might call the socially conscious, or maybe that's a watered down term, maybe even revolutionary Tupac. And then the party music, Tupac, you know, the one that works with Digital Underground, the two sides of that are Brenda's got a baby and versus I get around, right? There's the two sides to Tupac, especially early on. It occurred to me recently, Mike, that Tupac is one of the only artists that only had a five-year career that actually embodied like three or four of the biggest genres in hip-hop to date. The socially conscious rapper, the party rapper, and the gangster rapper, the one that probably led to his demise. In full, too, like he had songs, How Do You Want It? There's another party song, right? Or sexual party song, Keep Your Head Up. There's another conscious song. In each genre, I, I can go on and on. He fully inhabited each one to its fullest. And I don't think I can recall another artist really doing it like that. That's what made him special as well. He had all those parts. One of the things I really enjoyed about the documentary is watching the videos he did and some of his performances with these new goggles you give me, this goggles of seeing it through the legacy of the Black Panthers, which we'll talk more about. You show Brendan's Got a Baby, a, a video that you and your brother directed, and I still marvel at the storytelling, but I really now saw much more of this insistence on the legacy of his mother. The story's not just about individuals, it's about societal influence. This time watching it, when the camera kind of swivels up, Tupac and goes to the sides. It's almost like it, it also, the camera's trying to grab a bigger world. It's trying to say, this is about something beyond just the stories. This is about the world in some way, it feels to me. Yeah, it, well, I gotta tell you, like when we got that track and we were so down and out at the time, we had just lost out on, we were very close to getting the video by Tribe Called Quest, what's the scenario with Buster Rhymes and everyone. And we lost that bid in the 11th hour and we went a month without working and we were, brand new at this and we vowed the next thing we did we would put our heart soul and just because we were so desperate and when Tupac sent that second single because it was just Brenda's Got a Baby was the second time we were working with him on that debut album Tupac Lips Now and we heard that just goosebumps because we have been waiting for a mo moment where we could be serious filmmakers and here you have in this artist one long narrative rich verse it wasn't a traditional song with three verses and hooks. It was one long, incredible narrative. It was very poetic. So it lent itself. I remember though, the funniest thing is when we got to edit that thing you're talking about with the cameras, like it's swimming off him and in and out of his features. And it was very close. He did not like that. He did not understand <laughs> it. And he's like, what is this shit? And uh, we said our version of, oh, this is art, you know, and he let it go. And to this day, it's like the, one of the moments that's defined him because it captures what you just mentioned, like the essence of the streets and the milieu of all that, but it also really shows you the essence of him and how he holds up, even when you're like on his eye or on his nose or on his whatever. There's not everyone that can pull that off. I want to dig in a little bit into the legacy of Afeni Shakur and her involvement with the Black Panthers. As you said, there's really a history of the Panthers here. It's really intricately interwoven. One of the things that you emphasize is that while the Panthers were undoubtedly a militant group, they were more than that. Or, or to say a different way, they expressed their revolutionary aspects, yes, with guns, but also with books and, and social mission. That's sort of a, a new kind of view of the Black Panthers, I think. It expands our view of Black Panthers. Is, was it new to you? And were you trying to teach the yeah. audience something? I think the, the thing that really shook me to my core was we were all raised to think that they were a kill whitey organization. Yeah. When I find out like how inclusive they were and how they wanted to adopt in 
white people, Latin people, Asian people, gay people. You're like, what? And what they did for their community, what they did with those breakfast programs for the kids, the biggest revelation for me is they were hippies. They were, <laughs> and that's how they probably got infiltrated so easy. They were just essentially hippies, but they understood. I think their greatest downfall was the power of the same thing Tupac, I think Tupac learned was the power of iconography. When you look at those leather jackets, those berets and those guns, that's a scary image of black men and women with Afros, natural. And that's why they got the reaction they got from the FBI and the government outside of the obvious. They were really changing hearts and minds. And I didn't know that. Again, that old thing that Jamal Joseph talks about forming a true rainbow alliance. I was taught the opposite in high school. Anytime it came up, we were just taught that they were uh, a radical black group that wanted to kill white people. And that, and that's unfortunate. Yep. That's not the whole story for sure. And Afeni will embrace the social side of the Panthers. You tell a great story of her seeing a child and mother not receiving medical treatment. And not only does she pursue aid for the mother and child, but this becomes something of a broader mandate for the Panthers. Eventually, they'll be involved in writing a patient's code of rights that I think is still evident in New York City. Yeah, you know what's incredible about her journey is she was a woman that actually did the granular work. When you talk about that scene with the patient's bill of rights, when you talk about how active she was with the wrench strikes, and I can go on and on and on. Like She really rolled her sleeves up and got involved in the movement in a granular way. And you look today and people show up to marches, people post on Instagram, right? But when you look at what's been going on with our voting rights and the right to choose, affirmative action, all these things slipped away because everyone took their eye off the actual true work that Afeni and the others were doing back then. All the civil rights leaders in the community were doing the granular work, the, the stuff that wasn't sexy day to day. They were putting that work in. Yeah, that's something I did not know at all. And I think we see this in Tupac as well, right? Well, there certainly are guns. There's also this intellectual aspect and this focus on making the lives of Black people and impress people more generally better. Shock Chi from Digital Underground, who we lost, I believe, in the course of you making yeah. the series, says that Tupac did not want to be another Chuck D or KRS-One. I love them both, but preaching to the converted, but he wanted to inform people that didn't know their history. Yeah, that's a direct thing he got from Afeni. And the Black Panthers is you've got to change the hearts and minds of the people who are not of this experience to help this whole thing. When she talks about naming him Tupac Amaro, because it's an Incan martyr and for him to understand Black people weren't the only people they were. It's, it starts that way with him. What Black woman as authentic as a Fanny is going to have a child and name him that name because she wants him to know we're not the only people that have been enslaved. That's a pretty profound concept out the shoot. Another part of the legacy that you explore is the courtroom. And so we see Afeni in the wake of police operations against the Panthers defending herself in the court. You interweave this with Tupac's on court mm -hmm. hearings. And when I say interweave, you literally take bits of their statements and pretty much score them against the musical background, echoing each other, supporting each other, and building up to a crescendo. It really yeah. plays time in many ways here. It's like they're it's at the same moment, although it's decades apart. And they both say, I believe, to the judge in Tupac's case and to the jury in Afeni's case, something like, you got to do what you got to do, which is kind of a classic statement, both of the reality of the situation and resistance at the same time. Yeah, it was a trip. To, again, here's another thing I didn't know. 100 Center Street, same courthouse in Manhattan. Oh, no kidding. Um, wow. Same exact. As you see it in the archival. You see it at her time and then you flash to his time and there he is going through the same front door 
that was a trip because although they were a trial for much different things and people can think that I was comparing it, I, I wasn't comparing it. Just it's a different time, different circumstances, same results of being in that courtroom and there are some fishy things going on. It was just interesting to put them together because of how alike they as individuals are and how they handle those situations. And the, the film is called Dear Mama, so it's all to me. Like, that's what made the job simpler. It was like, how do we take his narrative and simplify it by discovering anything that didn't have to do with the direct parallels or connection emotionally or about their relationship together it had to go. So that's one of the cases where you're like, oh, look at this. This is directly parallels each other right down to the location. It's amazing. You make a lot of these connections. And as I said, you really cross time to do this. One of the ones that really made me step back and think a little bit about what was going on and consider the nature of that influence between the two time periods, how over time tensions grew between the East Coast Panthers and the West Coast Panthers. And I don't know a lot about rap and hip hop history, but even I, you know, started, my ears sort of perked up there. And I was like, wait a minute, this seems to anticipate a little bit of some of the rivalry that happened between East and West Coast rappers. And I began to wonder, is the connection here directly historical? Is it symbolic? Is it meant to show maybe because Tupac was raised in the world of the Panthers that he interpreted the East Coast, West Coast through this Panther lens? I I'm sure there's no one answer, but what would yeah, you yeah. I I was just like you. I was just struck by the Panther, East Coast, West Coast thing, and the hip hop. East Coast. And you can read all kinds of things into it. And I see, let's plant uh, enough seeds about this that you can draw your own conclusions because there is no one definitive one. And the, the thing you just mentioned about Tupac and maybe the way Prism and what she's looking at the world through, I had never thought about that way. But yes, I've always considered the paranoia part of the journey of Tupac. And I always assumed I knew what the paranoia came from. And I was like, oh, I just this is typical black kid, boy, you know, Hennessy, weed. We've all had some trauma. I didn't understand how serious it was. There's a story that didn't make the documentary that's in the book that's coming out. When he was eight years old, his mother and some of his Panther uncles and aunts, his job was to sit on the stoop in Harlem and watch out for feds all day. And I guess he blew his assignment one day. I can't remember what the punishment was, but it was severe. And I said, wow, wait a minute. I remember reading that this manuscript, a detailed manuscript about his life that a fanny had like worked on. I said, this kid's, they got him at eight years old, sitting on the stoop all day, look, looking for feds, blow the whistle, that he sees something. Then I understood where the paranoia came from, and it all started to make sense. So the whole thing about what was going on with QNP in the West Coast and what was going on with her comrades in the East Coast, he was a little boy experiencing that stuff. So it had to have had an influence on him. I think Snoop makes a very direct connection, right? He says, you know, these sort of fights between that we saw with the Panthers and we're seeing now saw then, Snoop speaking from yeah. present day, it's because they want us to hate each other. They, they yeah. are encouraging this. Snoop sees yeah. it in this worldview. Listen, it's a tough thing nowadays because people accuse you of being woke or this or that, but this is what this is. This, it, it, it's as American as apple pie. You look at inner city communities and, and you see whether it's the education system, the healthcare system, the way they police those neighborhoods. It's all just ingrained into our culture that to dislike those people and to treat those people like the other or treat them like shit. It just is what it is. It just is what it is. So I don't even think half the time it's like a conscious thing. It's just 
been around for 400 some years and it just is what it is. And it's sad. One of the things I really like about the film is watching Tupac in action, in videos, on stage, but also in the studio at this kind of moment of creation. And we hear some of the kind of contributing reasons why people believe that his voice carries such urgency. Snoop talks about the way he would stay in the recording booth, you know, keep pushing through until he really transmitted the emotion he was feeling. Dr. Dre basically suggests that when Tupac was freed from Clinton County, he basically jumped on a plane, went straight to L.A., jumped in the studio. Mm -hmm. And that sense of joy and freedom that you just can feel in California love, well, it's real. I mean, it's almost right from prison. What I discovered that Snoop said it, the part you pointed out, but even more so, the thing that made Tupac, this has got to be funny, similar to Frank Sinatra, is he would do it in one take. And it would be like really raw, like mistakes and all, rhythm off a little bit here, anger crackling over, and then he would commit to a take. He wouldn't punch the verse. And you can hear, like Frank Sinatra, there's actually a story in that. There's a narrative in that. And there's a passionate power and transcendence in that. When you think about hip-hop, how powerful the art form is and how poetic it is and how urgent it is and how visceral it is, we go on and on about all the things that hip-hop are that other genres just can't be. And to think that Tupac is the only one to figure it out, oh, now I'm going to smoke a bunch of weed, drink some Hennessy, come in here, right off an airplane and just go bananas on this mic and not correct it. But he had that kind of spirit that it sounded perfect, but it also sounded dangerous. When you press Tupac on a record like Hit Him Up against the whole of Straight Outta Compton album from N.W.A., it makes that album look like Romper Land. It really does. As great as the Straight Outta Compton album was in his and and Cuba in his prime, you're not going to match the visceral passion and urgency and realism and just how terrifying it all is of Tupac on Hit Em Up. Since you brought up a surprising connection there with Frank Sinatra, one of Tupac's friends from his youth, I think from Baltimore, described some of the music they listened to. Um, it's an interesting list. <laughs> yeah, Prince, of course. Kate Bush and the Cure. Uh, okay, that's interesting. Peter Gabriel, I can see. LL Cool J, of course. But... The one that really stands out, and you end up playing the song twice in the series, is Don McLean's Vincent, which is the Starry Starry Night song. Yeah. This no edit. First, I was like totally surprised by this, but then I started thinking about the kind of the storytelling complexity of Don McLean, and also as Eminem says, Tupac was the first rapper that made him cry. Kind of that emotional vulnerability that we hear. By the way, you're just pinpointing it. I, th- I think that when Eminem said that, that's what we're talking about. I always say that the thing that made him special was how available he was to any and every emotion he was in. And for a young man, that's rare, particularly for a young black man in the hip hop space, very rare. So when you look at the Starry Starry Night, one of my proudest moments in the documentary is in the middle of part four, where you see him doing and his teacher, his drama teacher, talking about Tupac doing that moving piece to Starry Starry Night. Donald Hickens, his teacher's name, who I love, wonderful insights. And in this piece, his transformation into hit him up. And you see the thesis, the central thesis of what it is about him that made him special, but also what made him so dangerous to himself and to others. Because it, when it comes to Don McLean's story night, what we're talking about essentially with Tupac is an artist, a poet, 
a, a performing arts kid and everything that comes with the kid that sees the world as a pure artist. And when you look at it from that perspective and you look at all the displacement issues and the way he had to adapt and adjust and become a chameleon wherever he moved, and you look at the powder keg that's being formed, it is very interesting. As we accelerate towards Tupac's last days in the series, we see a sequence that I thought really stands out. In it, Tupac and Snoop are seated, answering questions after the MTV Awards. And when the interviewer asks about the East Coast rappers, about Biggie and Puffy, as he was called then, Tupac starts by saying, hey, it's a friendly friendly rivalry. It's a game. It's a business. And then he starts to stray from that line a little bit, it feels like. You push in on, slowly push in on Snoop. You bring Tupac's sound down. Snoop speaks from today, you know, what he was thinking at that moment. Wow, it's really powerful. And we really begin to feel some distance, real distance growing between him and Tupac in that moment. That's probably my other favorite moment in part four, because one of the things that I, I try to focus on is like emotional innovation is what I call it. Technical stuff, but who cares about like, but one of those moments that you're like experiencing something emotionally, and you're discovering something, and it's just a simple trick you're pulling off, which is one man is here at 50 years old now, talking about two of them when they were 25 and what was going on. And you can see it written all over Snoop's face because Snoop is one of the most honest people I know, authentic people I know. Even when he's telling the line, you can see what he feels. He's not, he's just not that guy. That's a moment where you can see, let's talk about this, Mike. Tupac, who's a pure artist, a performing arts kid, and Snoop Dogg that truly does come from gangbanging and drug dealing. And you can see the artist is really taking it there. And it's incredibly believable what Tupac is saying and compelling and seemingly authentic. And then you see the guy that really was in the streets who did take bullets, who did shoot, who did sell drugs. You can see him completely shook and almost scared. And that was the discovery in that archival moment you're talking about, where you're like, all right, we have this wonderful piece of archival. Let's just stay in it and let's just slowly move into Snoop's face as he's talking about what he was really feeling at the time, which is clearly evident on his face. It gave me goosebumps when we discovered that. We brought up myth building. Gloria Glow of Andy's sister talks about it. Mike Tyson talks about it. As the series goes along, it felt to me like you're suggesting myth building was being replaced by playing a role. I think Donald Hicken, who you bring up, says he spoke to Tupac relatively later in the day, saying, you don't have to live this. You're letting your poetic mandate overpower your inner being. What a powerful statement, yeah. Again, like Donald Hickens, when he said that, I'm like, who would put it in words like that? That's incredible. But at the time, I don't know. You, you, that, is, that is a thesis. The, the thesis there is like, when you take the kid who's got the issues with the father not being there, which I can relate to, when you take the kid who's a son of a radical feminist activist, Black Panther, right, who struggled with addiction in most of his adolescence and all the displacement that came with that, when you take the kid that, which I didn't know at the time, you see at the end of part two and throughout the series, his anger towards the men in the movement that abandoned him and his mother. So it wasn't just daddy issues. It was male figures in his life, either being sent to jail or running off in somewhere or just not being accountable to him and his mother and all that stuff he learned as far as being a chameleon when you have all these severe displacement issues and you look at what Donald Hickens said and you look at the power of who he is as an artist I always say it's so corny when you put it this way but it's like the Star Wars universe like the Jedi's when you skip those steps 
that's when Donald Hickens said, he goes, I was worried this was going to break the continuity. That was the thing that resonated with me. When you skip the steps that you're meant to be in as far as your formal training and how to harness all those emotions and anger and fear and use them in a productive way, you see what would happen with him. And, and, that, and that's, that's heartbreaking. At the start of the last episode, you show us Fanny speaking at Clark Atlanta uh, in 2004. And given that date, we know that Tupac is gone. One thing she says is that she has spent her life, or at least some portion of it, running away. And she learned from Tupac not to run away. He never bent the knee, she says. And it really yeah. feels like the legacy that once ran from mother to son is now running the other way, from son to mother. My proudest moment on this whole journey was discovering uh, a Fanny one, just period, just in general, or her narrative. But also just when you look at, and again, I, I hate to be like the, the guy who's talking about the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell and all that bullshit, but like but when you look at her hero's journey, steeped in this whole five parts is all the whole myth-building thing. It's all in there. But when you see her hero's journey, when you see what she stood for as an 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old woman, you see when she stood for herself and stood on trial represented herself and you hear her words you see how off the charts transcendent her intelligence was and what she was fighting for and you see that she lost her way and you know why she lost her way it makes perfect sense and the addictions and how long she grappled with that and you see her come back and be in her son's life and clean her act up just in time to experience some of his great moments with him but when he passes and she takes that all that he is and figures out a way to bring the melody to the legacy and bring the meaning to the journey of Tupac. And it happens to be what she stands for. It, again, that gave me goosebumps. And when you see the last five minutes of the film where she's at Clark University and she's singing that Sweet Honey and the Rock uh, song while giving a speech at the same time, we people who believe in freedom will not rest until uh, we're free. I'm probably butchering the goddamn lyrics right now. But you're like, wow. This really happened with this woman and this kid. It's like you couldn't have been better at the story. It's so powerful because I had a moment on this one because I just could not reconcile. It just seemed meaningless the way he died. And it just seemed like, what happened? And for all these years, we've all been asking ourselves what happened. But when you see that last five minutes with the fanny, you see what she did with his legacy. You see what she did with his poetry, his writing, his music. You go, oh, wow. If he were still alive, maybe you the beacon wouldn't be so large globally. And the fact that she's able to push all these feelings and statements and messages that are inherently who he is and what this piece was about, Dear Mama, through this global icon now, you're like, wow. No one heard that little Black girl in 1971. No one cared about that little movement that she was involved in and what they were trying to fight for, that struggle, in 1971. They hear it now. And what do you feel is the legacy of, of Tupac in our world today? It's the thing I said at the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's become a global symbol of rebellion. Because I, I always had a problem connecting that last year of his life to the first 24 years. And you go, wow, what other person, historical figure do you know whose murals in Africa, Asia, South America, Europe, North America, the only one that comes close to that is Bob Marley. But there are parts of the world that Tupac's in that Bob Marley's just not in. And when Mike Tyson talks about the children's soldiers in Africa, you have to ask yourself, they don't understand the words he's saying. They don't speak English. 
but they feel that struggle. They feel that pain. They feel that passion. They feel that joy. They feel they feel he represents them. They can feel it. And he does. I think Tupac embodies the young black male, the American young black male initially. And then it just became a global thing where wherever you are, and it's just not black males. When Eminem says he's the first rap artist that made you cry, hip hop artist that made you cry. You can imagine in South America how those kids feel. They don't see, people don't see race when they see Tupac. They see the struggle. They see the pain. They see the triumph of the spirit through expression. They literally see poetry in motion is what I think. I think that's what Tupac represents. You can see it even back to that moment I'm talking about where we're going from starry, starry night into hit him up and you see him in slow motion and, and you hear starry, starry night. You're like, there's just something utterly again i use the word transcendent and magical about this guy even when it's dark that you don't even have to understand one word but you clearly get the articulation it's so clearly articulated what he's communicating and i think we all identify with that it's called pain thank you for that i think you said there's a book coming out yeah the book that was written by um stacy robinson who was an ep on the show there was a manuscript that was just sitting there because after Afeni passed, the estate didn't know if they wanted to finish it. I kind of used the book, the manuscript at the time as like a blueprint as far as discovering little narratives or people I didn't know existed, especially in this first 19 years. But Stacy has since gone back and finished it. And it's meant to come out, I think in September, October, I'm not sure, very soon now. Alan, thank you for your time today. The series is so profound and powerful. You folks are dealing with time and think really suggesting that the past is not the past, the past is influence on the present. It's so it's a very deep documentary. I think anyone who knows something about Tupac is going to be fascinated by it. But those who don't, the history of hip hop, the history of Black Panthers here is just an amazing treat. So thank you again. And congratulations on the Emmy nomination. Thank you, Mike, especially for your attention to detail. It is appreciated, man. It makes me go, oh, shit. <laughs> I thought about it that way. I really appreciate your attention to detail. We like to ask if you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you don't think gets the attention it deserves. I got two. One is A Portrait of Jason by Susan Clark, I believe, 1967. That's probably my newest, like, jewel, like, go-to because you learn so much about our culture through him and so many characters and nuances that you wouldn't otherwise know, and he just embodies all that stuff. It's very interesting, very ahead of his time. And then the other one is Orson Welles' F for Fake, my all-time favorite.